Two weeks ago, we looked at the beginning of Micah's third and final cycle of sermons contained in this book. And we saw in verses 1 to 8 of chapter 6 that God's people can, in times of distress, remember God's past acts of faithfulness as an encouragement to their souls. That they should never seek to earn God's favor as though our own works of righteousness or penance um, can prevail because they will fail. God, we saw, requires perfect justice, mercy, and humility if we are to be right with Him. Since we can't do this on our own, we must look to one who has perfectly lived before God. One who is perfectly just, merciful, and humble. One who died in our place, Jesus the Lord. We saw that God will not accept the sacrifice of my firstborn, as we saw in verse 7, because His wrath is appeased only in the death of His. Christ, who willingly gave Himself up that I, that we might be saved. We saw that for those of us who have been made right with God through faith in Messiah, we can and should set ourselves upon covenant faithfulness in the pursuit of justice, mercy, and humility. In our passage today, under consideration this morning, we will hear the Lord raise His voice loud and clear as He speaks against the wickedness of His people, Israel, who failed in their covenant obligations. If verses 1-8 to show us what God requires of His people, Verses six, sorry, 9 through 16 demonstrate what they had actually done and how God was to judge them for their failure. So look with me at Micah 6, 9 through 16 as I read these verses. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies. Their their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil, and you shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri, and all the the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. As we look to these verses this morning, I want to do so in just two major headings. First, in verses 9-12, to we will see Israel's failure to live in covenant faithfulness with the Lord. Second, in verses 13-16, to we will see how God brought about covenant curses. He brought the covenant curses down upon Israel for their sins. So first, verses 9-12, to Israel's broken covenant vows. 
We are once again reminded in this passage, specifically in verse 9, by way of an introduction, of the importance of listening. Micah begins these verses, the voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. The response, which is expected, is that the Israelites would listen over and over and over again. We have been reminded by the prophet Micah that we are deaf as a people. And yet he urges his audience, he urges his readers, he urges us to listen. He says it is sound wisdom to fear the name of God and to hear of the rod and of Him who appointed it. Micah exhorts us to pay careful attention to the voice of the Lord and then calls upon us to be cognizant of the consequences that come as a result of failing to do so. The Lord's voice comes directly into range next. Micah, he sets us up with this introduction and then we hear the Lord speaking directly. God asks these rhetorical questions here which serve to demonstrate the justice of the rod which He swings at His people for their breaking of the covenant. These verses beginning in verse 10 reveal something that if we've been paying attention throughout the book, we know quite well at this point. His people were plagued by a love of money. They had stored up treasures in their houses. They used a scant measure and wicked scales and deceitful weights. They defrauded and devalued the currency of others around them by rigging the system with falsely labeled weights. And measures. And God simply asks, Shall I forget these things? Shall I acquit the man who does this? The answer that is demanded here is a resounding no. No, God should not forget and acquit here. These wicked dealers had betrayed and abused their fellow countrymen, they had lived abominably before the Lord. The Lord at Sinai had called them to love Him supremely and to love their neighbors as themselves. And instead of selfless love of God and neighbor, they forsook God and oppressed neighbor. In bringing this word of judgment against the people of God, it seems like Micah here is making a very strong appeal to the wisdom of the Proverbs. Proverbs 20.10 says, Unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 11.1 says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is His delight. God doesn't just abominate two kinds of weights, two unequal weights to trick and to fool those with whom we're buying and selling to rip them off. But He actually delights in a just weight or measurement so that you know exactly how much you're paying. Why? Proverbs 16.11 says, A just balance and scales are the Lord's. 
All the weights in the bag are His work. God takes ownership of just weights and balances. And so false weights and balances that are used to deceive others in the marketplace are an offense and an affront to the truthfulness and the honesty of God. When the people would deceitfully tip the scales in their favor, they lied about what their stuff was worth. They lied about God. Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and Ezekiel all make this point as well. God is greatly concerned about His people dealing with others in terms of justice and equity. All throughout Micah, we've seen that God's people were especially money-hungry. And God was going to judge them for it and through it. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 7, God equated Samaria's wages with her idols. In chapter 2, God proclaims a severe judgment to come upon those who defraud and oppress a man and steal away his house and his inheritance. In chapter 3, He condemns the prophets, the priests, and the uh, leaders of Israel for giving, He says, judgments for a bribe, teaching for a price, and practicing divination for money. Even we saw in chapter uh, 6, verses 6-8, through eight, we saw that the people believed God Himself could be bought so long as the price was high enough. Everything, it seemed, for them boiled down to money. How familiar does this sound? Besides sex, mammon is perhaps the most enslaving master for the American people. We, like those in Micah's day, are enamored with the allure of money. Now this should come as no surprise. Scripture talks at length about the dangers of the love of money. Paul warns about setting our hope on the uncertainty of riches. And he says that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And through their craving to become rich, many people have wandered from the truth and they pierce themselves through with many pangs. During His life on earth, Jesus talked a lot about money. He says that we shouldn't store up treasures for ourselves on earth, but in heaven where moth and rust and thieves have no, no way to ruin or steal our possession. He said that it is more difficult for a rich man to enter into heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Money and all that it can buy and all the promises it makes entice us, allure us, and ensnare us when we set the accumulation and spending of money as our ultimate goal for our lives, we find it is never enough, however. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. The American dream, as it seems to have been originally intended, is kind of inspiring. Equality of opportunity for all. What a glorious motto for a nation. What it seems to have become 
however, is something sinister and savage. No longer do men and women seem content to boast of an equality of opportunity for men and women to pursue their dreams and better their lives if they are able. No, what we want today is is simply more and more and more. More for ourselves, more money, more things, more stuff. The ability to improve one's position in life through hard work and the blessing of God is no longer sufficient. We all want to be rich. Movies and TV shows lie to us and tell us that the happiest among us are the richest among us with enough money to buy it all. Whatever all is. Growing up, I I used to watch a show called, um, or a show on MTV called Cribs. Many of you are likely familiar with it. Uh, If you're not, first of all, MTV is a television channel that stands for music television. Um, But music videos, I guess, became less of a thing, and the channel stopped showing music videos and airing reality TV shows and shows like like Cribs. And Cribs, as I was saying, is a virtual tour through the homes of various celebrities and demonstrating how they spent the millions of dollars that they earned making movies or music or playing sports. Their homes were huge, immaculate, and full of the coolest things a 14-year-old kid could ever want. Apparently, what most adults could want. Things like in-home basketball courts, tennis courts, indoor and outdoor swimming pools, bowling alleys, in-home movie theaters, uh, eight, nine, ten-plus car garages. The view from the balcony was always breathtaking. The best wood, most precious metals, and ornate fixtures adorned these homes. My favorite moment in the whole series, which I didn't see the whole series, but of what I saw, my favorite moment was when Shaq held up one of his sneakers next to the 24-inch rims of his Escalade to demonstrate how big his shoe size was. It was hilarious. Now, my point in mentioning all this is not to say that owning nice things, even really, really nice things, because that's kind of relative, the point is to say that it's wrong But the concern, my concern, is with a culture that celebrates wealth and these lifestyles and choices and and this pursuit of riches as though they were the goal or the substance of life. And as though they were an ultimate depiction of success and happiness and fulfillment. Because if you follow the personal lives of nearly any of these celebrities, you will find that many of them are some of the most miserable, broken, and unhappy people who have ever lived on the planet. All the money in the world cannot and will not change that. In fact, if we take Scripture seriously, we may conclude that all the money in the world easily leads directly to said brokenness. Now, we've said this already in Micah, as we've in weeks past. The, the condemnation of God for these people is it's not directed at those who have gained their wealth honestly, but for those who have come by it through deceitful and sinful means. Listen to the questions that the Lord asked in verse 12. Or the questions asked, and then in verse 12, he says, Shall I forget? 
the treasures of wickedness? Can I ignore the scant measure? Should I acquit the one with wicked scales and a deceitful weight? And then in verse 12, he says, Your men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies. Their tongue is deceitful in their mouths. The means by which we attain whatever level of wealth we reach is far more important than whatever level of wealth we reach. Earlier we alluded to 1 Timothy 5 and 6 where Paul says that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And we shouldn't set our hope on the uncertainty of riches. But he goes on to say that for those who are rich in the present age, that we should remember that God has given us everything richly to enjoy. To be rich in good works. To do good and to store up for ourselves treasure in heaven that we may take hold of that which is truly life. In other words, wealth obtained honestly, enjoyed thoroughly, and used to bless and honor Christ, bless others and honor Christ, receives not even a whisper of condemnation from God. However, those who pursue wealth by means of deceit, fraud, and violence shall be brought to utter ruin by the wrath of the Almighty. Look with me in the second place then. Verses 13 to 16, where we see that the punishment, we see the punishment God pours out upon Israel for their covenant violations, their failure to, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God, and their failure to look ultimately to Messiah for their righteousness. Because of the deceitful and evil wealth-building practices of the Israelites, God says He is going to strike them with a grievous blow. He's going to make them desolate because of their sins. He says that they shall eat, but never reach the point of satiation. They shall save up, and it will come to nothing. They will work hard and receive nothing in return. Neither treading of olives nor pressing grapes will provide them with any joy of reward. God strikes them here. We see where it hurts the most. He strikes them in present necessities and enjoyments as well as future provisions, He says, will be taken from them. This all, surely, for Israel, came at the hands of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They had abused and oppressed others for their own gain. They stole from friend and neighbor. And so God, through the rod of the Assyrian, says He would take from them. The lavish and opulent meals they enjoyed would turn to ash in their mouths. No food would reside in their bellies. Only hunger. That which they stored up for themselves would not last. And the little that might last, he says, should be given to the sword and taken from them. They contented themselves with theft and robbery instead of hard, honest work. Now, he says, not even work, not even in hard work shall they provide, shall they find provision. They could break their backs in laborious sowing and nothing would come of it. All that they had would be taken and given to another. And it was. And he says all of this is because they had kept the statutes of Omri and the works of Ahab. Here he's, he's 
sussing out and giving greater detail to their sins. Omri and Ahab were two very wicked kings from Israel's past. Omri usurped the throne without prophetic sanction, and he ruled independently of God's law. According to 1 Kings 16, he sinned more than all the kings who came before him. His son Ahab followed closely in his footsteps. Ahab married Jezebel, whose name is now a literal byword for a wicked woman. Ahab, through Jezebel's influence, despite being the king of Israel, with more than he could spend or consume in probably multiple lifetimes, he killed, remember poor Naboth, and stole his only vineyard. The people of Israel, the Lord says, like Omri and Ahab, had become so unethical, immoral, and full of bloodshed that he would bring them to an end. And so he promises to make them a desolation and a hissing to bring scorn upon his people. Now lest we think the words here stand only against the nation of physical Israel, let us remember that God punishes sin wherever it is found. And any nation that refuses to submit to God's decree will not stand for long. Case in point. Are we to believe that this pandemic before us, which has engulfed the world these past several months, has nothing to do with sin? Are the sins described here in Micah 6, are they not some of the very sins that plague our world and nation and even the church today? It is not insignificant, I believe, that a nation fixated on health, wealth, and prosperity, a nation as fixated on those things as ours is, once again we find ourselves on the very brink of economic collapse. In his commentary on these verses, Rick Phillips writes these words, The futility envisioned by Micah is in large part experienced by America today. And he's writing this before all of this stuff going on. But it seems it's very prophetic, nearly. He says, America without God is experiencing a cursed futility, so that the idols of materialism and sensuality sap the life out of our nation's soul. In a land that once boasted safe homes, good schools, plentiful jobs, and fair prices, we are now beset by social, moral, economic, political, and psychological crises on every side. What has happened? We suffer the curse of futility in cities and a nation that no longer has an ear for the voice of the Lord. Now to be clear, I am not saying that every person suffering from the coronavirus is being judged by God for greed or deceit or necessarily any other specific sin. Jesus makes plain in John 9 that sometimes ailments befall us apart from any direct specific sin of our own. Job's sufferings also prove this point. Job was a righteous man and lost nearly everything he had in a single day. However, we must not deny the fact that sin has brought suffering into the world. And it's brought death into the world. And so every illness 
From the coronavirus to the seasonal flu to the common cold to broken bones to cancer to strep throat, while not necessarily a direct result from any particular sin of yours, they do exist because of sin. And more than simply being general conditions under which we must all live in a fallen world, at times, plagues, sicknesses, and various calamities are sent specifically by God for very specific reasons, including judgment for sin. And so what is the message God may be speaking to the world and to our country and to the church today? Last week I referenced Amos 4 as we discussed God's sovereign control over nature. We read that God often withholds food and rain and He sends blight and mildew and pestilence upon the earth. What's the purpose? Israel was being judged for its sins. But the goal, the stated purpose in those verses is that the trials would lead to faith and repentance. He did all of these things, he says, to provoke his people to turn back to him. And yet, for Israel, we see, they refused God's good purposes and they didn't turn back. This idea of suffering, prompting faith and repentance is brought to us by the Lord Jesus as well. Is this not how Jesus tells us to respond when we see any calamity? In Luke 13, 1-4, there were those who came to Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered them, He said, Do you think these Galileans were any worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed, do you think they were worse offenders than all who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So friends, were the Jews who suffered at the hands of the Assyrians and the Babylonians as predicted here in Micah, were they worse sinners than us? Are those who are being struck down by the coronavirus worse sinners than us? No. Are those who have lost jobs worse sinners than us? No. But let us remember that these things are meant to lead us to repentance. While we ought not to look at the current situation and despair, we should be reminded by it that all is not right in the world. Yes, God is on His throne, ruling and reigning over every atom that exists in the world. But the world is still broken, still cursed, still crying out for redemption. And right now, many of us feel it perhaps more acutely than we have in a long time. We can't say ultimately what is in the mind of the Lord as He hurls this pandemic on the earth. But we can say a few things. Like we saw Last week in Psalm 46, God is a refuge for us. He is good. And all that He does is good. And we can trust Him even in the midst of this calamity and any other. And we can take this as a reminder and an opportunity to repent of our sins and place fresh faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Because you see the beautiful thing about a passage like Micah 6, 9 through 16, that while on the face of it may seem to offer nothing but dismay, this passage reminds us as saints of the new covenant that there is, in fact, an abundance of hope for the people of God. Because Christ was starved of his Father's love on the cross so that you might feast upon it. Christ, though he had stored up the love of God in his heart, found his cupboard bare on that day on Calvary so that yours might be full. Christ sowed righteousness but reaped death and was tread down in the winepress of the wrath of God and was anointed with the oil of wrath. And he drank the wine of wrath down to the dregs so that we might be cleansed from our sins, so that we might feast at the table of the King for eternity. Christ was dealt the grievous blow and was made a desolation, a hissing, and He bore the scorn of His people so that sinners like us, like you and me, might be forgiven and restored to God. So I pray for anyone who may hear this sermon who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you would now turn to Him in faith. Turn your eyes upon Christ. Tune your ears to His voice and live. Reach out, dear friend, and take hold of that which is truly life. And for all the rest of us who know and love and walk with the Lord, I pray that even in the midst of great hardship, confusion, and calamity in the days ahead, that we would live secure in the love of God, turning from our sins, finding rest for our souls.